even if you're making a big pivot that completely changes your career, if you know that it's for the right reasons, it's easier to kind of feel reassured and confident. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. I'm your host, Kim Skorupski, and you've joined us for the Triple H, the Habits and Hacks from Hopkins. And I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Dr. Helen Hughes. Hi, Helen. Hi, thanks for having me, Kim. Well, thanks for being here. And as you know, we're in the Triple H series, and I I can't wait to um, have you share what your little habits and hacks and tips are with the crowd. But before you do, why don't you tell everybody what you do here at Hopkins? So I am a faculty member in the School of Medicine in the um, Division of General Pediatrics. I joined the faculty in 2018, and before that, did all my training at Hopkins. I was actually born at Johns Hopkins, and some people make fun of me for being a a true lifer. Um, I left for my undergraduate, but came back pretty much for everything else. And um, I also serve as the Associate Medical Director for the Office of Telemedicine at Hopkins, which helps to serve the health system's needs related to telemedicine, and I'm the Medical Director for Pediatric Telemedicine in my department. That is awesome. And I want you to get right into your your story today because it has so much application to what's been happening in all of our lives the past year and a half. And I've been talking a lot about this and really curious to get into the meat of this. So go ahead and share your story. Okay, excellent. So I was hoping to chat with the audience today around the concept of pivoting, which has been a really important thing that's happened in my professional life in the past couple of years. Um, But when I joined the faculty in in 2018, um, I work in a a primary care clinic in East Baltimore, our resident um, pediatric clinic called the Harriet Lane Clinic. And I am really interested in in equity and in healthcare access and making care easier for patients and families. Um, And through that had become interested in telemedicine. Initially, I thought as a primary care doctor, telemedicine was more kind of like doc in the box, services that took care out of the primary care home and kind of had a negative perception of it. But then I started to learn more about it and the history of telemedicine really starting with the Indian Health Service and getting care out to Native American reservations and how a lot of the the efforts of the government to promote telemedicine had been around improving access to care for patients who had limited access to care. So at that time, pre-COVID, I helped lead a small pilot of uh, pediatric specialty telemedicine follow-up for my department. Um, But at that time, Maryland Medicaid and a number of insurers didn't cover telemedicine visits for patients in the outpatient setting unless they were in a specific site, like a federally qualified health center, a health department. They couldn't be in their homes. So we had a pilot where we had patients on the eastern shore of Maryland who saw Hopkins specialists, and they would go to a health department in eastern Maryland to follow up with their specialist. And in my potentially naive first year faculty self, I thought, this is the future. We have to do this. I'm going to lead this pilot. It's going to be perfect. I'm going to study it and publish it. And this is going to be my career. Um, But there were many, many barriers to kind of getting that program off the ground. And I'd started working on it actually pre my faculty. So I'd worked on it for about two years. And in January of 2020, kind of felt like it was floundering. I, I didn't think it was going to be a success. We'd had pretty low volume. It was it was hard to get engagement um, and, and get things organized. So I was actually considering giving up on the dream of telemedicine altogether um, and kind of switching, switching tracks and, and pivoting to another area of research. And then COVID happened, which as many people are aware, really melted away many of the logistical, regulatory, billing, legal barriers um, to telemedicine being a viable part of care. And so at that point, I was able to pivot and sort of 
go back to my mission and values and why I had first gotten interested in and really um, delve deep into um, kind of becoming even more an expert in telemedicine and helping it work for my department. And that that work during COVID led to now these administrative roles that I have related to telemedicine. Um, but certainly if you'd asked me in 2018 when I joined faculty, you know, what my career would like like in 2021, this is not at all what I thought was going to happen or kind of what my mentors had um, helped me envision based on their careers. Um, and, but, you know, having a mission and a vision and, um, values that you can go back to when there are big opportunities or big changes, I think is really helpful because then, you know, you're making, you can make a decision informed by kind of your own guiding principles, which, you know, I think when you're in healthcare and working for an organization like Hopkins, where you're, you can be really mission driven, it's nice and reassuring to, even if you're making a big pivot that completely changes your career, if you know that it's for the right reasons, it's easier to kind of feel reassured and confident. That, thank you so much, Helen, for sharing this story. I mean, it's such a, it was quick, it was fast, and it's definitely feels like, wow, what a triumph. And what a way to, um, fortuitous, you know, if you had put it this way, a global pandemic, who knew that a global pandemic would lead me back to this, you know, true north that I, and my guiding principles you talked about and the importance of access to care. But I'm wondering if I can take you back a couple of years to 2018 or three years, because I'm sure there are faculty members out there who are thinking, I too, you know, my guiding principle or my values or mission are really are compelling me to um, work in XYZ space. And I want to know more, you know, for, if I'm a faculty member listening to you, where were these pain points? At what, you know, when do we, as scientists or academic health faculty members, when do we know when enough is enough? I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm really curious where those pain points were. And at what point do you kind of throw in the towel, raise a white flag and say, okay, I'm done. I'm out. I can't, I've done everything I can do. Therefore that informed decision-making I'm washing my hands at this versus, you know, the premature kind of like, oh, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. You know, I'm thinking of many instances in my career where I, I you know, I get frustrated when a journal rejects my paper and I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I, I'm done with this paper. Forget about it. I'm going to burn it. Uh, I hate it. And I get all crunchy and mad and I walk away from it. And of course I'm like, Kim, you're not going to burn the paper. You're just going to find another journal. But, but so where, where, how does that help us understand for you from 2018 to like January, 2020, what were you doing? And then what, or what, what were the things that were going wrong that made you go, I got to pivot? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, you know, I did the junior faculty leadership program here at Hopkins and had done an other faculty development and, and residency and fellowship development um, efforts talking through kind of mission and vision and values. And I felt like I had spent so much time and money on my education that I wanted to, in 20 to 30 years, look back and think I really made a difference. And I guess in 2018 to 2020 time, um, the biggest model I had for that was getting a career development award. So being a researcher at a place like Hopkins and applying for K and getting it, and that legitimizes your path as an expert and someone who's going to really make an impact. And I couldn't 
marry my interests and my time and kind of what I, my responsibilities were with a vision that fit with getting a career development award. And so I felt like I don't have a five-year plan. (laughs) Um, So it felt like I had a a vision and a mission, but couldn't align how I was spending my day-to-day time and what my kind of one to three-year plan was with a a longer-term goal of like wanting to make an impact, so to speak. Um, So that's where I felt kind of lost and felt like I needed to go back to the drawing board to say like, okay, what is a K I could write (laughs) that would, you know, be feasible and have mentorship of people I know and, and, and have, you know, be within the realm of interests I had. And it felt, I know I've talked in other sessions where everyone kind of feels like they're not in the mold, but I, you know, you could see these people around you who've really found these very uh, specific niches and, I was starting to feel like I was someone who couldn't find a niche. <laughs> like I had these very general passions and interests and that felt like maybe it was a problem with me. <laughs> like I'm not going to fit in this institution because I can't, you know, narrow down something specific enough that the NIH would want to fund it. But now I feel like none of that mattered. <laughs> like it just wasn't meant to be because a different thing was meant to be, which ultimately was a much better fit for me. So I'm sure at every institution, there's a feeling like, there's a particular definition of success and you don't know, you know, whether you're fitting into that definition or not, but um, certainly this experience has been very freeing to recognize that you just ultimately have to do what you're passionate about because that's the only thing that's worth working a lot and being away from your family for. And at least for me, a a good amount of it was serendipity, but certainly having an area that I was passionate about made it so much easier to kind of pivot. And, and even if, if there's uncertainty around kind of the future path. What, what would you tell someone right now who is maybe where you were in January, 2020, you know, they're at that, at that decision point, that, that fork in the road. And what, what would maybe if no, Dr. Helen Hughes had a checklist that before you go left uh, or before you take the branch in the road, versus staying on the road, like what's the checklist? What are some of the things that you remember doing that helped you, you know, persevere and and stay true and not give up and not just completely like, you know, have a meltdown or, you know, what kind of helped you stay the course and maintain focus? Is it, was it like personality, stubborn persistence? Yeah. I mean, I was having some meltdowns in in January, February, 2020. And, uh, you know, honestly, it was serendipity, I think that, um, that uh, worked for me, but that experience I think has given me some perspective of what the advice I would have given myself then. Um, even if, if it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily that I engineered it to be this way, but, um, you know, I think one thing is just looking at your calendar and understanding how you're spending your time. So if you go through these mission, vision, values exercises, or you go through an exercise where you think this is where I want to be in five and 10 years, and then literally look at your calendar for like a week or a month and how much time are you actually spending that's going to lead you in that direction, um, I think is a good it's good to do that every once in a while, whether it's twice a year or once a year, because if you're spending 99% of your time on things that aren't getting you in that direction, it you probably need to kind of make a change because um, otherwise you're going to do that for five years and you're not going to be anywhere close to where you wanted to be um, in that five or 10 year timeline. I think the other thing, um, what was I going to say? 
Well, while, while you're reflecting, reflecting on that, okay. I just kind of want to interrupt is that you're reminding me of the whole idea of getting into good habits so that, you know, blocking out time in the calendar is something that I've been preaching for years in the WAGs, you know, the right, right. accountability groups that, and to be very, very specific in the calendar, you don't say Kim's writing day because right. it's too broad, too general. And then you're like, oh, how do I even start my writing day? Rather, you take very specific chunks of, you know, from this time to that time for 20 minutes, flesh out the last two paragraphs of the discussion section or work on the references for paper one, two, three, do table two for paper X, Y, Z. And that specificity allows us to get in, get out. Um, yes. Just like going to the gym. You're not going to say, I'm just good. Some of us can say, I'm going to work out, but others say, no, today is biceps and back, or right. I'm going to walk for 20 minutes on the, I'm going to do with the, the high intensity interval class. I mean, so that specificity helps you be laser focused. So I, I like how you right away went to something that's obviously natural for you, or maybe you learned it, but establishing good habits that we can fill our, our lives and fill our day with all kinds of, you know, must haves or must do's like the, the covey and urgent, important stuff, the things we must attend to the patients and to the charting and then the things that we don't have any control over, but those important, but not urgent things, things like our career that don't have to happen today. I mean, you don't necessarily right. have to write those two paragraphs today at this moment, uh, but those important, not urgent things have to be in the calendar because like you said, if it's not in the calendar, it's not going to magically happen. You're not going to get fit magically by thinking right. about it or talking about it. We have to do it. Yes. So it is kind of, I couldn't help but like insert that on your really good idea about the habits in the calendar. Yes. I think that's really important and still something, I wouldn't say I'm an expert at that. So um, still something I'm working through, but I think that's really important. Um, I did remember the other thing I was going to say, which is I probably would have told my f- f- previous self to um, just find any opportunity you can to develop expertise. Um, I think what I was able to do through just serendipity was I had a little bit of expertise in something that was really needed. And then I developed a much more deeper expertise in it and it's still needed. And so, um, you know, I had done an MPH, which was great. And I learned a lot of skills, but a lot of people have those skills. So if you can find a way to have expertise in something that's either unique or valuable to others, um, there's like the sky's the limit. (laughs) That's like what the keys then are unlocked because then you can be of use to other people. And, um, you know, regardless if it's from a research standpoint and you have a, like an analytic skill or a data method skill that other people don't have, um, from a clinical standpoint, if you're an expertise, you've expertise in a particular condition and you really develop that much more than other people in your field, um, and then in my case, kind of with this modality of care telemedicine, I just feel so much more career satisfaction, feeling like I have an area of expertise and just my knowledge is helpful to other people. Whereas I, I, I felt that as a clinician um, before, but I didn't necessarily feel that um, from like kind of a scholarly um, uh, content expertise area. Yeah, that, that's so important that we talk all the time in faculty development about thinking of our careers in academia as kind of like the the sands and the hourglass that, you know, that it's, that we start broadly when we're starting off our building our careers, taking courses in many, many, you know, areas. And then the idea is that with the, you know, this, the specialty field, your internship, your fellowship, your residency, or the, the postdoctoral fellowship where you narrow in and dissertation, and then 
we broaden out toward, you know, when we're toward the ends of our careers, but that focus and that becoming expert in or becoming the go-to person about, that's what then, like I said, elevate, elevates you and sets you aside and makes you unique. And that's where you can contribute to that, that knowledge. Can you, can you talk us through how you develop that expertise? You said, you know, I got the MPH. Um, can you remember what specific things you did that you think put you over the edge for telemedicine that made people say, oh, when they think of telemedicine, they think of Dr. Helen Hughes. What are a couple of things that you would tell people, like if you want to be the expert, uh, do what? Or don't do what? Yeah, I mean, there are advantages to picking something new. Um, So it's hard to become the expert in asthma. (laughs) Like there are tons of experts in asthma. Um, And, um, you know, certainly you can be developed like a niche within that. But if there's a really established field, you're going to have to find a really narrow niche. Um, When something is new and a lot of technology fits into this, um, you know, informatics, not just telemedicine, um, and there aren't as many people who are trained to do it, um, I think it's a little bit easier to gain expertise more quickly um, because um, just by nature, particularly in telemedicine, things are changing so quickly. So, you know, even if I'd studied things really in depth two years ago, almost all of it's irrelevant now. The first is if you pick something new, it's easier to become an expert. Um, And then the second is having passion and learning a lot about something makes you an expert. I think I've I've definitely struggled with imposter syndrome at times to say, you know, well, there are more people, people that know more about this than me. But even when COVID hit, you know, I had spent hours going to webinars. I went to a national meeting on telemedicine. I, even though I had, it was not a part of my job title, I devoted a lot of time to trying to learn as much as I could. Um, so then when people needed that information, I, I had it. <laughs> so then I became the go-to person um, just because I had invested the time because it was something I was passionate about. Yeah, I, I love that. I love you telling that story because it just it makes me think of so many times I think we sell ourselves short by thinking. And my friend Jennifer Haythorn Floyd always says, don't believe everything you think. But sometimes we think, well, everybody can do this. Anybody does this. I mean, how can I possibly contribute in this space? I'll I'll never be like person A, B, or C to do this. Why bother? But what you also said that made me, you know, appreciate like what, what I've done and how I've come through my life is, is then recognizing those gaps. And, and like you said, a slight subtle twist on something or hence the pivoting that, for example, this faculty factory podcast, you talk to anybody who knows me well, they laughed hysterically when I, they first heard that I was going to do a podcast because I'm the biggest Luddite. I, all my IT guys in the, the Dean's office joke that I have a metal plate somewhere, a bunch of them buried in my head because technology never works for me. I barely know how to use a cell phone. I wish I had a wall-mounted you know, rotary dial phone. I hate all technology. And when they heard this, they're like, who, who, why, what, how are you even doing this? And that's, I don't even know how I do it. But you know, at first it was like, I wanted to build community and I, and somebody, you know, I, I was listening to well, what podcast you listen to. I'm like, I don't even know what a podcast is. I don't know where they are. I don't know how to get them. It takes too long to get them. Never mind. But I thought, well, everybody does podcasts. Who cares? So it was the combination of, you know, the pieces falling in together. And you mentioned serendipity, but almost kind of that same thing of 
recognizing, okay, Kim, you know, you're an extrovert. You're passionate about faculty development. You love to build community. You whine all the time that the annual AAMC GFA conference, we don't have enough time to network and get to know each other and help each other and share resources. And there's, when you do the literature search before doing the project, there's really nothing else like this. So if not me, who? If not now, when? Right. So that, you know, just by my thought, well, I'll just do it for a minute and see how it works out until something else comes along. You're right. Now, all of a sudden, it kind of evolves into, well, okay, I guess I have to own this. And I guess I am. This is the only, the space doing this. So I think what I'm liking about your message is that reflecting always, you know, going back to your, your mission, vision, values, and what is passionate, what, what are you passionate about, and then looking for the little pivot moments or the little unique little, I don't know what to call them, but just little aha moments where, well, if you take a little bit of a dash of this and a cup of that and a spoon of that, whoa, all of a sudden, yeah, these things alone are done, but when you mix them together, you can come up with something new. So, you know, finding something new doesn't have to be a single isolated something brand new, a new disease condition technology, but bringing hybrids of things together, right? recognizing different elements can be the new thing, right? right. Yeah. Any sense? Totally. I think one of the favorite phrases I learned was luck favors the prepared. Starting to develop your mission and, and values early in your career and trying to develop expertise in something. Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Just go something and start with it. And then and then be open to new opportunities because that that's when you'll pivot and you'll say, oh, this this fits with my mission and vision and it's not quite in my comfort zone, but it's a new opportunity to grow and, and, and it's really aligned. Um, so this is something I'm going to take and do. Wow. Well, this is, this has been really uh, encouraging, inspiring. Is there something else you'd like to share with the audience before we sign up? Um, oh, I don't think so. I mean, you know, being a faculty member is a, is a journey. Um, so I really wish uh, the very best to everyone who's listening. I think there's a lot of um, depending on who you are, there can be a lot of self-doubt in that journey, but um, being in academics is really amazing to be able to have, you know, intellectual freedom. And um, if if people are in my shoes, as I was in 2018, feeling really lost, um, I think just being, you know, looking back at your mission, vision, values, seeing how that aligns with how you're spending your time and then trying to develop expertise and being open to new opportunities. Um, I hope it it leads everyone in the right direction. That's a wonderful, wonderful message. Thank you for that nice summary and wrap up, Dr. Helen Hughes. And remember what Helen's told us. I love that quote. I don't know that I've heard that. Luck favors the prepared. So being prepared. And I want to thank you so much, Helen. And thank you for joining us at the Faculty Factory Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.